we are going to be spending time in this text talking about how God's enthroned forever in the heavens. You know, how you see life and how you experience life depends largely on your perspective, on your focus. Uh, a painter and a preacher and a cowboy visited the Grand Canyon together. And the painter looked out and he said, Oh, I need to paint this. And the preacher said, Glory, look what God has done. And the cowboy said, I sure would hate to lose a cow down there. And that's how they looked at it. It depended on their occupation. That's how life is. Our perspective changes everything. It means everything. Now, as Christians, we are saved through faith. Ephesians 2, verse 8. What's faith if it's not a perspective on life? Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is a way of looking at life. It is a focus. And when you're dealing with affliction, when you're dealing with pain, it is important to have the right focus. And if you're really struggling with it, it may be that you need to shift your focus. I've entitled this lesson, Enthroned Forever, but another good title would be Shift Your Focus. Because as we look at Psalm 102, the psalmist is praying to God, and as he does, you see him struggling with affliction and working to shift his focus into a perspective that will help him through his affliction. And that's what we're going to work on this morning as we study together. So in the first place, notice this. Number one, shift your focus from your outer self to your inner self. Look at the poetry here. In vivid poetry, the author describes our mortality in detail. First of all, in terms of time. A key word here in this text is the word days. Look at uh, chapter 102, verse 3. For my days pass away like smoke. Then look at verse 11. My days are like a lengthened shadow. Remember, they used sundials to tell time. So the shadow is long, meaning the time is short. Look at uh, verse 23. He has shortened my days. And then finally, verse 24. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. He's talking about his mortality in terms of time. Secondly, notice he speaks of his mortality in terms of his aging, afflicted body. Verse 3, my bones burn like a furnace. He's growing old. He's experiencing pain and disease, ailments and age. Number three, he discusses mortality in terms of emotional instability. Verse 4, he says, my heart is struck down like grass and has withered. So outside and in his mind, he is struggling with his mortality. He is fading away as a human being. Despite old age, sickness, and physical disability, some people seem to be able to avoid that. 
they don't seem to notice the aging process as much as others. Oh, they deal with it. They struggle. They get impatient at doctor's offices and hate taking their prescription medicines. And, you know, they, they have those struggles, but they don't seem to give in to the decaying body the way that other people do. Some people go to great lengths to fight old age. Uh, they'll use supplements and get uh, plastic surgery and do intense exercise regimens. And, and uh, just they're always searching for that fountain of youth out there, hoping that someday they'll find it and they'll be able to avoid what all the earth has to go through. And that is the aging process. But others don't seem to mind it all that much. They're having a completely different experience. And it's just a, a different focus for them. They've shifted their focus from the outer self to the more lasting inner self. And you see whatever you expect to see. Your focus just makes that much of a difference. A little boy was lost in a gym one time and he wandered into the women's locker room. And the women started covering themselves with towels and shrieking and ducking for cover. And he said, what's the problem? Have you never seen a little boy before? He wasn't thinking about them. He's thinking about himself. And that's how it is. You know, we, we have a particular focus that determines what we're fixating our mind on. How are you gauging your life? Outwardly or inwardly? Paul says an inward focus will keep us from losing heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Shift your focus from outer self to inner self. Number two, shift your focus from earthly ties to eternal bonds. Look again at Psalm 102. The author's affliction is made worse through his loneliness. Verses 6 and 7. He says, I am like a desert owl of the wilderness. Some of your translations say a pelican of the wilderness. The translators are not exactly sure what kind of bird this is, but it's a bird that usually is alone, a lonely bird. That's the agreement. So desert owl of the wilderness. He goes on to say, like an owl of the waste places. Now note this, I lie awake. He's an insomniac. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Have you ever had trouble sleeping? And you're tossing and turning in your bed. And you hear the solitary song of a night bird. You know, in the morning, the birds are all chirping together. at dawn's chorus. But in the middle of the night, sometimes you can just hear that night bird singing alone, and you commiserate with it. You feel some kind of connection there. It's loneliness. There's never a lo more lonely time than the nighttime. And if you've ever struggled with sleeping, you know what that's like. Those hours go by so slowly. Nights can be so long. Loneliness is difficult. And it's hard to make friends. And if you base your friendship on superficial concerns, what you need to know is usually that's not going to work too well. The best bonds and the best cure for loneliness is to make friends and make bonds through 
pursuing a higher purpose in life. I mean, why do you want to have a friend? Just to share experiences or to be liked? Can it go deeper than that? We have an innate desire for relationships. Many of us don't understand what it is that we're searching for. Popularity? What good is popularity and how long does it last? Friendship has to be about something deeper than that. Now, I like what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book on uh, love, the four loves. And I don't have the whole quotation up here, but just part of it. But here's the entire quotation. He says, that is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth, I only want a friend. No friendship can arise, though affection of course may. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. What do you think about that? Friendship has to be about something besides just friendship. Where did you meet your closest friends? How did you form those closest bonds? Your spouse, where did you meet him or her? More than likely, it was in pursuing a higher purpose. And having those deeper goals in life brought you together naturally with like-minded souls and formed those bonds that, that last forever. The love formed through loving God first forms the strongest bonds. And so in the psalm, you see him crying out to the Lord when he's alone. It begins this way, verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. He also says in verse 17, he says, He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Jesus knew this as well. On the night of his arrest, in John chapter 16, verse 32, he told his disciples, his closest friends, he said, The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. And then he says this, Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. In Christ, we have the strongest bonds. And we will never be alone, because even when everyone leaves us, we can find solace in a relationship with our Father in heaven. But in the church, those bonds are formed. When you come to God first, you automatically find yourself with a strong family. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his, Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. And we carry those bonds into eternity. At the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul said, Where is our glory? Where is our crown of rejoicing? And then he says, is it not you? For you are our glory and you are our joy at his appearing. When Christ returns, one of the things that's going to enrich heaven are the bonds you formed in Christ here on earth. You can't carry many things over from here to heaven. But we will know one another and we will be reunited 
in that eternal place. And so we may need to shift our focus from earthly ties to eternal bonds. Number three, shift your focus from a sinful past to God's enduring mercy. Look at verse 10 of Psalm 102. The author recognizes his share of the responsibility for his affliction in saying, because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. He understands that he is hurting because he's brought this affliction on himself through sin. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. This applies to all of us. The wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And that death, is, as Brett was pointing out so, so well this morning as we were around the Lord's table, that sin separates us from God. That's our biggest problem. That's what divides us from God. And sometimes that can haunt us. But we don't have to dwell on our sinful past. We can fall on the mercy of a compassionate God. And you see that appeal to mercy here in Psalm 102. Look at verse 13, where there's a turn in the, in the poetry here. And he says, you will arise and have pity on Zion. He's talking about mercy. You will have mercy on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. As long as you have breath, you have an opportunity because of the mercy of God. It's never too late to put your sins in the past and fall upon the mercies of God. Jeremiah said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Lamentations 3, 22 and following. Shift your focus from a sinful past to God's enduring mercy. Number four, shift your focus from bitter complaint to heartfelt prayer. The structure of the psalm is, is like this. Verses 3 through 11 form a bitter complaint. And if that were the entire psalm, it would be a devastating psalm. It would not be very well loved. It would just be full of complaining, and that's it. But the author responds to his bitterness through prayer. He doesn't begin with the complaint. He begins with the prayer, and he ends with, with prayer. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. And then verse 17, he regards the prayer of the destitute, and does not despise their prayer. So this psalm, as all psalms, teaches us how to pray. Look at it and study it. He, he mentions his complaint, but he doesn't dwell on it. He shifts into heartfelt prayer. We can learn something from that. You know, the optic nerve is the only nerve that goes directly into the brain and what's interesting about it is the brain is sending more signals from the brain to the eye than is coming from the eye to the brain. And so we see what, we, what the brain tells us to see. Uh, we, that's why you'll have four people have the same experience and they'll report it in four different ways. We have four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And some of the skeptics point to that and they say, 
You have four different gospel accounts, and there are contradictions between them. They're not contradictions, by the way. They're differences in detail. There's a big difference between contradictions and differences in detail. As long as there is a plausible explanation for those differences, and there is in every case, there's no contradiction there. It's just four different people giving their own perspective on the same story. And when you put them all together, there's beautiful harmony there. It's just differences in detail. In fact, if they all said the exact same thing and shared the same details in the same way, we would find them guilty of collusion. Now, police detectives are suspicious when there's collusion, when they get two witnesses in two separate rooms and they interrogate them and they say the exact same thing. It means they got together and got their story straight before they went to the, the, the police department. That's when you know somebody's lying. The re, one of the evidences for the authenticity of the gospel accounts is the differences that you have there. Because a different perspective will give you a different thing to see. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John saw the same story, but they saw it from different angles. And that's helpful to us. Shift your focus from complaint to prayer. And as you pray to God, you will start seeing things from His view instead of from your own limited view here on earth. Number five. This point is the main focus of the psalm. Shift your focus from the temporary world to the eternal throne of God. Don't just look at it from a physical point of view. The difference between the Creator and His creation is the most striking contrast that you find here in Psalm 102. Look at verses 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. A note on verse 26. The Hebrew word for change is used twice with reference to the garments. Uh, in the ESV from which I was reading, it's translated change the first time and pass away the second time. And that's because this Hebrew word change has two basic meanings. It can mean change as in exchange one thing for another, which is what you do when you change clothes. Hopefully this morning you took off your pajamas and you put on nice Sunday clothes. Uh, looking around except for a couple of the babies, that seems to be the case. And the second way the word change is used in Hebrew is to pass away, which is exactly how the ESV translated it. And what will happen at the end of time to the world? Both. First of all, this world and all the elements, the whole physical universe will pass away. And secondly, it's going to be changed from this heaven and earth to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. A note on the return of the Lord. There is a very popular idea now that when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring heaven with him and he's going to restore the earth to an Edenic paradise and dwell with us here. We're standing on heaven right now. It's just 
It just needs to be remodeled. That's not what the Bible teaches about the earth. What you see right here and in other passages is the world is going to be done away with. It's going to be dissolved. It's going to be destroyed. Look at Peter's language in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. They'll, they'll melt with an intense heat. And it will be exchanged just like you changed garments from one set of clothes to another. I want that new set of clothes. I want those bodies that won't perish, that won't die. I want to live in a heaven that's not plagued by disease and age and, and wearing out. I want the new heaven and the new earth that God has promised. Look at the contrast. They will perish, but you will remain. You are the same, and your years have no end. If you back up to verse 12 of Psalm 102, he says, You, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. When all the world is falling apart and uncertain and you don't know what's going to happen next, turn to God. He never changes. He is the one constant anchor we have in our lives. Friends, we need that. The seven wonders of the ancient world. Have you heard about them? Can you list them? There's the tomb of Mausolus, the temple of Artemis, the hanging gardens of Babylon, King Ptolemy's lighthouse outside of Alexandria, the 100-foot statue called the Colossus at Rhodes, the 40-foot statue of Zeus at Olympia, and the pyramids of Egypt. Have you ever visited one of those? If any of you can say that you visited one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it has to have been the pyramids of Egypt. You know how I know that? Because they're the only ones that are still standing. There's not a brick left of the other six. Great monuments to the accomplishments of humanity, and they're dust. They're dust. But God remains the same. And where's your focus going to be? On the dust or on the eternal throne of Almighty God? We sing the song, Abide With Me. And the line is true. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. What experience do you want to have in the world? You want to see the world from the dust and decay or from the eternal throne of God? In Cormac McCarthy's book, Cities in the Plain, the title comes from a scene where one of the main characters is looking down on the plain and all the cities there, and he's seeing them from a new perspective. And he says, it looks a lot better from up here than it does down there. He says, there are a lot of things that look better at a distance. The life you've lived, for one. And then he says, maybe also the life you have yet to live. How do you see the life you've lived and the life you have yet to live? Do you see it from a worldly perspective or from heaven's perspective? It makes a big difference. If you're drowning in your affliction, if you're suffocating in your pain, if your trials are too much for you, shift your focus from the world to heaven. See it from God's perspective. Let's turn to the last point here. Psalm 102, shift your focus, number six, from the threats of the enemy to the love 
of Christ. As in many of the Psalms, the writer here is dealing with enemies, and he prays to God about it. Verse 8, all the day my enemies taunt me, those who deride me use my name for a curse. We face all sorts of enemies in this life. We have personal enemies who attack us for our appearance, who attack us because of our choices that we make, because of the things we like to do. There are philosophical enemies who attack our ideas and our way of looking at life and our faith. There are moral enemies that attack the way we live our lives. They attack our purity, our morals, our concern for holiness. And it's difficult to deal with this. Jesus says, love your enemies. Matthew 5, Isn't that a hard thing to do? We all have enemies. They're difficult. And above all, we have the ultimate enemy, Satan, whose name means adversary. He's also called the devil, which means accuser. And Peter tells us we still need to be sober, be vigilant. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It's wise to know your enemy. Chinese general Sun Tzu said, If you know your enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but you don't know the enemy, for every victory you win, you will suffer a defeat. If you know neither yourself nor the enemy, you will succumb to every battle. It's important to know your enemies, but don't get fixated on them. Don't be afraid of them. Don't let that be your focus because you have the love of Jesus Christ. Now I want to ask you to turn to verses 25 through 28 of this psalm. We've read them before, but I want you to think about them in terms of Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews quotes these verses in Hebrews chapter 1 as he's comparing Christ with the angels and showing that Christ is superior to the angels. And this is one of his texts where he says, For to which the angels did he ever say these things? He's implying that God has said this about Jesus Christ. These words that we read together now from Psalm 102, verses 25 and following. Of old, you, Christ, laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you, Christ, will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you, Jesus, are the same, and your years have no end. Christ will never change. Christ made the world. He is our world. Now, while we're thinking about him, back up just a few verses to verse 23. And what does it say about mortality? He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. That verse is never applied to Jesus in the New Testament, but isn't it applicable? How long did he live? 33 years on this earth. Not a day was for himself. It was all for us. His life was broken mid-course. His days shortened. Cut short for us. He bore his affliction 
not just with you, but instead of you. Because it's we who deserve to be on that cross. And he took our place and he bled and died so that we might have life. Where's your focus going to be? On the enemies that taunt you? On Satan who accuses you? Or on Jesus who died instead of you because he loves you so very much? Let me encourage you this morning to shift your focus from outer self to inner self. From earthly ties to eternal bonds. From a sinful past to God's enduring mercy. From bitter complaint to heartfelt prayer. From the temporary world to the eternal throne of God. From the threats of the enemy to the love of Jesus Christ. Feeling afflicted, hurt, lost, shift your focus and find God who sits on His eternal throne. We're going to extend the invitation. If we can help you in any way this morning, we ask that you come right now as we stand and as we sing.